Is that an Altoid or something? I need it, man. I need it. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're from you're from Philadelphia, right? True. Okay, so your big thing there is the the cheesesteaks, right? Oh yeah. But you know the term hoagie, right? Oh yeah, that's what I grew up eating. Like what the rest Hoagies. of the world calls a a sub, I we we would call a hoagie. I think of a hoagie as especially as usually having some kind of like like a lot of onions and oil, and it's got a very distinctive flavor and a very distinctive odor. And I'm pretty sure that someone has been storing one inside of this T-shirt that I've been wearing because <laughs> I really, really need a mint. And the mint cannot get to where the hoagie lives. And that is problematic. God, these are good. You want to go live? Yeah, we're live now. <laughs> and we're back. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know what I like? I like these little ones. I like these. Uh, they're called smalls. <laughs> I don't like the big Altoids. I don't like the big Altoids. I think they look they look uh, they look poorly made. I don't like them. Hang on, just one second. How are you doing this week? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I had an idea for today's show. Okay. Um, a couple one to three visits ago, I I happened to talk about something related to challenge. I don't, I'm not trying to remember what we were talking about. I think we we're talking about the chick sent me high stuff. Yeah. Right. Remember what we we're talking about? Well, but you said you said you said you you like that idea of talking about challenge. Well, I do. I do like the idea in in general talking about that because that's something that for me on a personal level, that's always an interesting topic for for introverted contemplation for thinking about what are you supposed to do with things that are really hard. And uh, throughout my career, there have been. It wasn't until. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting ahead of things. No, I know you're. I think you're not at all. There was a there was a point in my career when I, I was uh, I had been in, in. I was essentially running my own business, but all that really means is that I was doing freelance software development, building content management systems for people. That was basically my job, and I I did it twelve to fifteen hours a day, seven days a week, and I was perpetually at that point where I didn't have enough money to hire somebody to help me. Uh, but had way more work than I could do. And it was, it was challenging in the sense of getting the work done. It, it, was, in a, it was challenging in the sense of solving the, the problems the clients had. It was challenging in lining up work, but it was completely unfulfilling and, uh, and horrible. And I had taken on way, all of the projects turned out to be way bigger than they were supposed to be. I took on way more work than I could possibly <laughs> handle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember reading a, a Winston Churchill quote that is a famous one that was new to me at the time, which is the only way out is through. <laughs> right. And that, be, I, like, I must have said the, that to myself like 20 times a day. It goes up the uh, avenue that I think Montero stuff is so great at addressing, which is the kind of these two things that you do when you're, I don't know, what are you going to call it, a rookie? I think there's, there's two fatal things. One is... Um, one is I, I think you, you I don't want to say just it's, it's not as simple as not charging enough, but there's something in a larger sense of not valuing what you do enough, even though you may be pissing and moaning at, at two in the morning about how you've got way too much to do and aren't charging enough. But you realize too late that you should be charging more if you like, or you mm. realize too late that you should be yeah again just valuing that more. But then also the complementary in a bad way part of that is not having the stones to just sort of realize that enough to be really strong with clients and say, look, and the language I use now that it's taken me 15, 16, however many years to get good at it is to say, hey, look, I, I couldn't do a great job for you by charging that much. Or if I promise to deliver that, <laughs> you know, people ask me to do stuff. And I'll, seriously, I'll just say really honestly, look, if I promise to do that today, I'd have to break that promise really soon. Yeah. So I'd rather just assume that we not, I not promise that because it's just based on my current velocity of disappointment, there's a pretty good chance that I am going to disappoint you on that. Did you remember that feeling though? And it feels like it feels pretty hopeless, especially when you're new to that game. And when you're like you were and you're kind of stuck between those two steps. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, totally it do. be a real feeling. So I challenge, yeah, that's actually a really good example for, I think that's a really good example for what I've been thinking about. Because I think when you, people usually think about challenge, they actually they're thinking about something that's they they might actually mean 
stimulating in in a intellectual right. way. Like, oh, well, it's, I, it's very challenging. I, what a challenging problem. I'm looking forward to that as opposed to challenging, like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Yeah, it's almost like difficult versus stimulating. Yeah. But, you know, and one reason I think this is worth bringing up, because, again, I've noticed some little bit of buzz on, on the Twitter and, and, and in other places about talking about the Csikszentmihalyi stuff, which I think is worth mentioning again, because it is a very engrossing idea. <clears throat> and, again, I don't have this in front of me, but did you, did you look at it? Do you remember? I think it's I think the way he phrases I, I I think I said it as expertise versus um, expertise versus challenge yeah, or something like that. I think but so. I forget what it is in his words, but the basic notion is that the highest level of engagement that we have with our work is when we're doing work that is challenging, maybe even difficult, if you like, um, but it's also something that we're pretty good at, right? And so when you find this sweet spot, this is when you're fine, where you find what he calls flow, is when you're at a very high level of challenge and a high level of expertise. You know, when, um, you know, when, you're, when you're sword fighting with, with, with somebody who's as good as you, right? I don't know why I thought of sword fighting. I've been watching Star Wars a lot lately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my daughter, my daughter tried to duel me uh, two days ago w- with a M M&M lightsaber. It was kind of weird. And it was right after she showed me that M M&M and M Princess Leia, which really disturbs me. Have you seen it? <laughs> no. No, it's it's there's like an uncanny, uncanny valley inside the uncanny valley. Oh, it's like a green M M&M and M in a white robe. It just it just messes with my whole sexual cosmology. Because <laughs> I like chocolate, but you know, come on, <laughs> let's, let's get our priorities straight. Yeah, oh yeah. And the reason I've been thinking about this stuff is because um, of the book I'm writing. And I, I had this uh, thing uh, that just grabbed me the other day, and I, now I can't stop thinking about it. Um, well, first of all, um, if you haven't been bored with this rant in the past, I think it's really important. I really believe that it is very important to learn to solve the right problem on the right level for the right reason. And what's an example of that? You know, The classic example to me or the example I like to give is if you came home from work and suddenly you discovered there was 10 holes in your roof that your wife had bugged you about fixing. And now your, your house is just full of like three foot of gray, gray water. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, and it's, I think that's a really interesting example about how problem solving works. Because, well, you know, there's any, there's really, have we talked about this on the show before, Dan? I don't think so. The, the, I call it the leaky roof. Um, and, and so really there's, there's at least two general ways that you can approach this. There's, con- there's conventional ways and unconventional ways. And the conventional way would be, well, first of all, just grab some freaking buckets, right? Grab some buckets and towels. Or even before you do that, you might move the photos off of grandma's piano. But right, you're going to do some stuff that's very tactical, like, oh my gosh, I have to save the heirlooms kind of stuff. But then, yeah, you're going to grab some five-gallon buckets and some towels and you're going to clean up. If you're real studly, you might want to go like climb up on the roof in the middle of that rainstorm and see if you can fix it. You might put some tarps down. At the very least, you're going to call somebody. And maybe someday you'll get a refi so you can buy a new roof. But the way I look at it is those are all ways to solve a very related problem, but they're really different levels to solve that problem at. The problem of getting you know, your, your last photo of grandma off the piano is you're solving a very immediate and urgent problem right now. Um, you are going to need to get a new roof at some point, but just because you can't get a new, new roof tonight doesn't mean you shouldn't get grandma's picture off the piano. Is that, does that make any sense at all, Dan? It does. It, it's a strange way of looking at it, but it does make sense. I don't think it is a strange way because I think, well, I'll tell you why I think that anyway. Because I think a lot of people would come home and find, if you're like me, you might come home and find this torrential rain, and then you'd just sit there in, in the one dry chair you could find for four hours making a list and trying to reprioritize it. Instead of going, wait a minute, like, what do I have to do right now? How do I staunch the flow of blood, if you like? So the levels problem to me means, and, and again, now I, personally, I'm not qualified to get up on the roof and try to fix it. Right. That would be stupid. I would fall and kill myself because I don't have that expertise. I don't have that experience. I do have the expertise you know, to dial seven numbers and try and have someone come to my house to fix it. But I guess what I want to get, the nut of what I want to get at there is that in all of those conventional ways to solve that particular problem, the problem of there's water in my house that I don't want to be here now and in the future, just because you can't get a new roof doesn't mean you shouldn't at least call somebody. And even if you haven't called anybody yet, you should still do some emergency stuff. And to me, that is, that's an analogy that works with things like email or that works with lots of stuff that people realize is a problem. Now, the unconventional approach uh, there's several unconventional approaches, some of which are interesting and some of which are bad crap crazy. Um, first of all, you can learn to like it. You could really learn to like having your living room full of water, like gray-ish water. <laughs> that is a solution, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. Um, another solution is to move. 
is to literally like grab grandma's picture and walk out of that house and never go back or, you know, sell it later. The most interesting, albeit unconventional approach of all of those though, is to pray that it never rains again. Mm. And I'm not a deist anymore, but even if I were a deist, I, I would postulate that that is probably the least likely to stick of all of those solutions because you can't solve rain. Um, you can't solve rain. You can't solve evil. Um, and I don't think you can solve email. <laughs> Personally, mm. I think, I think email is a lot like rain. I think you got to hack it. I think you, you can get an umbrella. You can change the date of your wedding. Uh, you can learn to uh, like it. Oh, but you're never going to make it. You're never going to make it go away. And that's and to me, that's where where we get to to the the thrust of this, which is, in my opinion, first of all, no matter what kind of problem you're challenged with, learning to solve it on the right level for the right reason when it's the right problem is a really great idea. What are some examples with looking at the house thing? Well, let's see, solving the right problem at the right level for the right reason. Well, if you came in and you saw that torrential rain in your ranch style house, Dan Benjamin. Yes. If you went. And started, if you grabbed a, uh, let's say you grabbed a um, plumber's helper and started, you know, <laughs> plunging your toilet, right. well, that's definitely water related and involves home maintenance, but it's not going to fix all the water that's in your living room. You know what I mean? It would be magical thinking to think you could do anything with a plunger just because you really like using a plunger, right. for example. That's the wrong way to try to solve that problem. Getting down on your knees and praying for the rain to stop, I think that's probably a little bit ambitious. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I think, I think in, in the reason this, this works in my racket is I see, and this really is a, a, a big management problem that I see a lot. And it's saying, to be honest, it's a worker bee problem too. Uh, yes, trying to solve email, but also trying to say things like the nice people who hire me will go like, hey, listen, I love your stuff. I love getting things done. I want you to come in and get all these people straightened out. And I'm like, well, what would that look like <laughs> if I come in and straighten people out? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's this company that sells groceries uh, that's based uh, pretty close to here that really wanted me to come out. And I turned down the gig. It was a good deal. And I turned it down because the people who wanted to hire me were so out of their skulls. They really were like, I want, people, want you to come in and help people get good at email so they can do more email. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really hard. That's like me teaching you to exercise so that you can like, eat a lot of potato chips. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because, because to me, the, the, the point of this is like you're trying to solve the wrong problem there. You're, you're not even trying to solve a problem. You're, you're doing nothing but like yeah. throwing resources at a symptom of a non-problem in some ways. It's like, I've, I mean, I, I know I've said this a lot, but like if you're getting your email and you're sending your email without getting errors, your problem is not actually with email. Your email is fine. Your email works. You only have an email problem if the IMAP server is down, right? Or you only have a problem if you're on exchange. Hold for a lap. <laughs> right. Otherwise, your problems with people and expectations by and large. So here's the problem. What does that mean? Well, that means inside of a company, somebody who goes back to that whole, like, you know, everybody's stupid but me kind of problem. How do I get everybody to do email like me? Let's go hire Merlin. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I hope you have unlimited money and time because we're never going to solve that. You're never going to make everybody do anything. That's what makes email in particular impossible. Mm. You have no control over the relevance and volume. You have no control uh, over the expectations, and you know, have very little control over the ability to walk away from it. And so, in order to change email, you'd have to change the world, right? You'd have to boil the ocean, as we say. So, this is a very roundabout way. I'm trying to frame the problem in a way that at least I hope is sensible to people, which is that to be good at knowledge work, because you are on your own, because it is a black box job, because you have to solve problems on your own, and then you've got to go negotiate relationships on your own as well, there's going to be a lot of times where you don't even know if you've got the right kind of information. You may get really focused on the one part of a problem that you understand because of your vantage point or your expertise. And you can very much, let's be honest, get stuck in that thing of everybody's you know, kind of stupid but me. And I think managers get into that all the time. And I'm, I, it's been several episodes since I beat up on HR, so let's go ahead and, and uh, get back to the dream. You know, <laughs> I, it's, HR buys stuff at scale. They buy DVDs and posters and stuff at scale. Because that's what they do, right? I don't think this purchase order will take less than like, you know, five digits. Right. And so, so what are they going to do? How, but like, when's the, when's the, what's the last thing you ever fixed a problem with that, that, that helped 10,000 people in the same way at the same time? It's, <laughs> it's really hard to do. And with a lot of my friends, if you tried to solve any problem about employee development, any HR problem, you know, it, really, really anything that has to do with doing your job better, if you tried 
to think any that you could help any more than 10 or 15 people with exactly the same solution means you probably don't understand the, the problem and you probably don't understand the people that you're trying to help. It would be really costly to try and help every person in your company in exactly the way that benefits both of you. And so most people don't. But we do have that control because it is our black box. We do own it. Like in, especially if you're an independent person or you want to be an independent person, this is your curse and your blessing is that you've got to figure this stuff out. Now, to the point of today's episode, I wanted to call it impossibly boring is the name of the episode because it, it seems to me that um, if you remember, I don't know, Dan, on our last visit and the after show, I, I said that uh, – I ended up saying something that's become really important to me in the last couple of weeks, which is uh, this idea that uh, the thing that I'm interested in right now, let's say, is making the time to be scared of more interesting things. Mm. And I, I kind of can't stop thinking about that. And I'm trying to think about like, what would it look like if we didn't use productivity to have more time to dick around or to do less? What if we used our productivity to be able to do more interesting and scary things? And to me, to do more interesting and scary things means that you're confronting stuff that is new to you. You are going to build, let's look at it this way, will you ever build your independence and expertise by doing stuff that's not scary? And the answer is no. If you only do non-scary stuff, you're going to keep having non-scary results, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the direction that a lot of us tend to go is solving that wrong problem at the wrong level for the wrong reason. Specifically, wrong problem, I think we try to solve too many problems that are impossible and we try to solve too many problems that are boring. How do, you know, how do you know which ones are the ones that are solvable then and which ask, ones are? Ask the people who are good at it. That's the problem, right? Yeah. In your case, so you talked about you know, being on your own doing um, you know, whatever contract freelance stuff. Yeah. And I mean, did you even have the context, the perspective to be able to understand the problem on that kind of level? No, no, yeah. I was totally in the weeds. You were in the weeds. Exactly, exactly the term I was thinking. You were totally in the weeds is a term, you know, you use when you're like a waiter or you're working in a restaurant where you're like, you're, you've got so many tables and there's so much going on and it's such, so chaotic. You can't get any perspective. No, exactly. And, and so when I, in the weeds, when somebody, when you say you're in the weeds, when I was a waiter, it meant a variety of things. First of all, it meant that you were really busy, that you were in our parlance slammed. That meant you had like a full seating. But it also, it also meant that, um, you kind of couldn't think of anything except what you're chaotic about, <laughs> which meant the implicit thing was somebody goes, hey, can you bring some glasses from the back? I can't. I'm in the weeds. Right. As in, like, I cannot possibly take any more in right now. Well, you know, if you do stuff for a while, I think, I think you, you can still be in the weeds but not lose your head, right? So as far as how you know what's impossible and what's boring, well, I'll tell you a good example of something I think is impossible and boring is email. Um, again, can you solve rain? Well, rain is a very interesting problem to solve because there are a lot of, you know, engineering and <laughs> climactic factors involved in making it go away forever. You could build a weather machine. But the truth is you're, gonna, you're better off to hack it. You're better off to go like an umbrella is just going to have to be okay today. Or like I say, we're going to have to move our picnic to another day. Or I'm going to have to like it. And I think the same is true with email. In, 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 in the stuff that I do, I think people get so wound up on trying to, A, get good at email, for example. And I'm sorry to beat up on email, but that's just a, a pretty good example as far as I'm concerned, we right. can come, come to others as well. But like, how do you solve that? Well, you can't. There's always going to be more email. There's always going to be expectations you can't control. And I mean, I think really in some ways along the lines of, I've, I've said it's like racing a jet, where like if you think you're winning, it's probably because the jet hasn't even turned its, its engines on yet. There is, there's nothing inherently scarce about things like email. You know, my wife and I really disagree on this stuff. Like, she has no problem with email. And she even gets more than me. But I've said to her, she like, She has it's more almost, than you. Uh, I just, people are scared to email me, which is great. By and large. I mean, I love hearing from people, but I'm really glad people just don't go, hey, eh, you know, because then you go, oh, thanks. And then they go, hey, eh. And pretty soon you got 7,000 <laughs> emails of, hey, eh. I love people. Don't get me wrong. Some people. A few people. I like you. Um... <laughs> But we go back and forth on this because she disagrees completely. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, God, do you remember when you had your old job and like you come back from lunch and your voicemail box would be full? Do you remember that feeling, Dan, when people were still like, <laughs> before most of us had turned off their voicemail? Yeah. You remember that though? You like come back and voicemail is the ultimate slack. It's just sitting me. there flashing at you. Well, it takes the least effort of all. You can really just go, boop. Hey, Dan, your message is, uh, you should update your message. Um, this is Bob. Uh, have you? Are you in the Henderson report? Because I, God, it's hot in here. You don't have to think about any of it. You just start talking <laughs> until it ends. And then you can call and leave another. 
There's no scarcity, right? And I was like, now, now, Madeline, imagine you came back. Imagine you weren't allowed to use your phone to call anyone because every time you picked it up, you had to listen to a message. I feel that way with Gmail. Like, if I, if I want to send somebody an email, I always land back in my inbox. Well, you know what? Like, ah, sorry, I'm a sociopath. I don't need to know about email all the time. There's times I need to send email. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit like what? I mean, it's like not being able to read a letter until you agree to respond to all the email or the letters you've already got. I don't know. I just think that's, I think that's bananas. And it's the only medium where the expectations are so high and so off. And I, I, again, I, I don't know, if for, for people who disagree with this, the whole show might fall apart, but I think this is true for a lot of things. I think almost anything involving people is ultimately impossible. Not because people are bad, and not because you're bad, or not because of any of that. It's just because people, people are not a solvable problem. It's one thing that drives engineers crazy sometimes is they, they want people to be like a Python script. And, you know, if it's other engineers, that might work. But the rest of us are not that close to the metal. Do you know what I mean, Dan Benjamin? I do. Now, listen, we could, we could do our sponsor because we've got oh. one. Oh, speaking, oh speaking, of, of, speaking of the riddles on Dixie Cups. Yeah. Yeah. Should I turn off my mic? No, you can keep I mean, that's only for, uh, for John Syracuse to do. Well, I'm much, much further from the metal than he is. So we though, we have a sponsor for this show. It's it's Mailchimp.com, and they uh, let me tell you about them really, really quickly. If that if that's okay, can you will you allow that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, is that a new is that a new thing? They they just started working with you. Mail mail Mailchimp Mailchimp. They've actually been a, our longest uh, sponsor and probably biggest supporter since I started. And your, and your this name thing. is Dan. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So Mailchimp they make it easy to design email newsletters. That's what they're all about. And uh, they make it easy to share them on social networks. You can integrate with the web services that you already use. And if you're the type that likes to design things, you can use your own HTML and CSS. Uh, but they also have this really awesome template gallery uh, it, it created by people like Dan Rubin, Elliot J. Stocks, John Hicks, Koi Vin. They've all made templates that are free for you to just start using. And uh, as, as Merlin likes to say, you can think of it as your own personal newsletter publishing platform. I do. I love. I love to say you that. Like to say I, say, that. I, I say that to my wife. We're watching Thomas sometimes. Yeah. So there's some really cool integrations. I mean, they have social sharing. They have integration with Facebook. There's the, the things that geeks like, like A/B split testing, Google Analytics, autoresponders. Uh, but th- they have something called a Chimp Kit, which lets you integrate it with your iOS apps. They have Chimp Bot for your Android apps. And this is the cool thing: is that it's all free. All of this is free. You can send twelve thousand emails a month for free to up to two thousand subscribers for free. Uh, this is really good time to join them. You don't need a credit card to do it or anything. You just go to MailChimp.com. You sign up for free. And uh, if you do that, you'll be supporting this show. So thank you. Check it out. Yeah. Mail- MailChimp.com. MailChimp.com. I don't know if this is making sense. It is. But I, think, I, I, think, well, I think when you talk about being close to the metal, this is a phrase that, that you've used on a few shows. And a lot of the people, do you read the email that we get? Do you respond? Do you see all that that comes in? I see that a bunch arrived. A bunch arrived. Yeah, a lot. And especially after last week's show. But being close to the metal, you've used that term. But have we really talked about that as a topic? Is today well, I'm the right using day? It, to- I'm using it as a joke because I don't know what it means. I, I mean, I understand that it means that it's like an old school assembly kind of language that's very close to the... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I know what it means. No, but I'm, just, I'm not saying. Do you know what it means? I'm saying that that's a. I think it works really well. And oh, in really? A lot of the, yeah, no. I'm. I'm oh, that was uh, intentional. Well, of course it was. No, I, I actually really think that it works very well be, as an analogy Dan, to explain be, this. I think it would be better if you explained it rather than me. Is that okay? Could you go ahead? Because I know what it means, but I know a lot of people are going to say that's fine for Dan because he understands the metal. So I think you should explain it. <laughs> right. I, right. I, know it, I know what that means. I know what the lizard brain is. Why don't you explain it for these dumbasses, Sorry, uh, our listeners? Yeah. Uh, basically, when they when they talk about something that's, that's being close to the metal um, – you may even have heard it abbreviated CTM, but it's it, it's basically being as low level and as close as possible to the direct, I guess you would say, in the instruction set, the assembly language, being as close to actually moving around those little zeros and ones as possible. That so the closer to the metal that you are, the the lower level of the language, the more direct you would be communicating. We should you know. John Syracuse could probably You're get some serious F you on this. Yeah, I know. Cause I'm not, I'm not doing a great job of it, but that's the concept is that's the, how is, it used to be back in the day is, I mean, you, you were I, moving the zeros and ones. 
I, I know it's not wrong, but that's like almost how I'm thinking about it. There's stuff, there's stuff that's hardwired. In, well, not hardwired. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Forgive me, everybody. John, everybody, don't listen. But, but you're very close to the, the instructions that make the computer run. You're closer and closer to that. Right. There's not that level of abstraction in between. And so one thing is um, speed. Speed, right, Dan? Isn't that, is that Definitely one Definitely speed, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of why, I mean... But at the same time, the, the implication is it, typically when you are that close to the metal, the burden is then on, I don't know if this is relevant, but the burden is on you as the person who's, who's doing that. The burden is then on you to do the extra work instead of, in the case of programming languages, instead of letting the programming language do the heavy lifting for you. Now hmm. you do it. You do it directly. You do it manually. You oh. do it yourself. It's, it's not... Mm, it sounds sense? like it sounds like totally and it sounds like it's not completely different from back in the day when it was pretty costly to do a lot of stuff on the web because it all had to happen on the server right so this is why some things like cgi uh scripts might not hold up very well a poorly written Perl script could just really tear up your processor not all john but 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 right pro- that can be a very processor yeah. intensive stuff to be running on a query by query it's not very smart right you're not caching or anything like that and so something like javascript means a bunch of the maybe not heavy lifting but some of the lifting is, is shunted off to your browser it's not like yesterday i wanted to test my speed on um at&t versus verizon for tethering and so i ran this one that was like this java app and of course i was on wireless while i was doing it <laughs> it seemed like this whole program had to load <laughs> locally before it would run. Yeah, right. Before it would even hit the JVM. It just like had to... <coughs> but it was giant. You just see that coffee cup spinning and spinning and spinning. And I'm just like, God, this is my life. But isn't that kind of the case with JavaScript is that is that now one reason we can do this cool Ajax stuff is there's not a big server, you know, wheezing and moaning. It's happening in your browser. It's further from the metal in that sense, yes? I, I Definitely. I'm not sure what that has to do with this, but I'm glad to finally know exactly. We can finally talk about it. Open God, it. those episodes are good. They're so confusing. Yeah. I think I'm going to go with MacRuby. I hear rumors about MacRuby. Do you hear rumors about MacRuby? I have not heard any rumors about it. I hear rumors about MacRuby. I hear rumors. I hear that's a good way to go. Murmurings? Mm-hmm. I hear murmurings. Mm-hmm. I hear. I guess you can look at like where the... Go, go, go talk to the Johns. You can look at what's getting staffed up. You know what I'm saying? I don't know anything about computers. <sighs> you have to decide for yourself what your impossible problems are. Uh, email and rain are two that come to mind for me. Let me let, so you're saying I'm, try try to solve the impossible problem or try no, not saying, to solve it, never solve it? Well, I'm saying once you realize that a problem that you've been trying to solve is either impossible or so ridiculously out of scope that it's not worth solving, you go, wait a minute. And sorry to use a term that's become totally like a dick term, but like, is there a life hack for this? Like that used to kind of mean something. Yeah. Right? Isn't there, is there a way that I could get 80% of what I need in terms of my outcome rather than trying to fix the cause? Right? So the cause of email is that everybody's different. But good luck. I hope you find a patch for that. I don't think that's going to work. Well, you know what's better off is like run some JavaScript in your brain. Like how about you do some of the heavy lifting to just ignore trolls to respond to the people that need a response and then lavish a huge amount of time on the people that you're really tight with. Yeah, there's scripts for that. Yeah, there's priority inbox. There's all that other stuff in terms of email. And what about rain? Well, you know, here's a good one. Don't plan your wedding for the rainiest month of the year for where you live. That is a good way to solve rain without having to actually solve rain. Is this making any sense at all, Dan? Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I... So, like, so where, where, does, where does never give up fit into this? So I was, I was watching The Celebrity yeah. Apprentice, which is great. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that show? Uh... <laughs> I have not. I, I, I watch almost no television. This is Donald and, Trump. This is Donald Trump. Yeah, show. I watch almost no television. And the television that I watch is usually in, incredibly stupid. Uh, <laughs> I, I admire that. On, on purpose. And so I was watching The Celebrity Apprentice. Before it got interrupted, there was some news about uh, some Osama, you know, Osama thing. I, I don't know. I was interrupting my show. Mm. So I didn't get to see the end of it. But before I saw the end of it, uh, or didn't get to see the end of it, before it was interrupted with uh, some news, some na- international news. Donald Trump was talking about how uh, he, he's, he let LaToya back on the show. He's never done it before, and he says he never will do it again. <laughs> Is uh, LaToya a judge or a participant? Partis- she's in a potential, you know, she wants to be the apprentice. They let her back, let LaToya this back LaToya, on the show. This is LaToya Jackson. Oh, do you know her? 
I'm just not sure that she's close enough to like a share or Liberace level of familiarity to be just Latoya, at least not in, in my okay. neighborhood. Uh, so this let, is the one she's had a lot of, a lot of plastic surgery, and I'm guessing she's very ambitious and she wants to be his apprentice. Is that the idea? Yeah, let, he let her back on the show. She was voted off, but he the guys had lost uh, a, a team member earlier. So because they were essentially down a person, he d- agreed to let her back on because, as he said, she wouldn't give up. She'd never give up. And he said he respected that. And he said never give up. So when... When do you know that you should give up? I mean, that's kind of, yeah. are you saying give up? Or are you saying shift gears? Or what are you saying? Because that's something that I think about a lot when you're, when you're facing a problem like this. And it, sometimes it feels like you're giving up. Totally, totally. No, it's a, it's a great question. I think you, <clears throat> in some ways, are getting to the real heart of this, which is how do you know if something is impossible or possible or hackable, if you like. Um, maybe more importantly, I now understand what it seems like when I would describe D&D campaigns to people. Because that's kind of how I felt when you talked let's, about Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, like, you know. So we knew that there'd be bugbears on the first level. <laughs> bug uh, or, but look, I had uh, high, hard boots. Uh, uh, 50 GP. Uh, Vorpal weapon. Uh, bag of holding hidden door. <sighs> Vampires. Uh, second level, really. That's at least a fourth level. I don't know. Um, okay, that's an excellent question. And see also a myth of Sisyphus, right? Sisyphus, I don't remember the exact story, but the, 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 the part of Sisyphus that's important is he's trying to push a rock up a hill. And every time it gets back up to the top, it rolls back down. Well, and again, forgive me if you're like, you know, a, a Greek scholar or something. But, you know, um, I, assume, I assume it's Greek. It's got a Y. Almost everything with a Y is Greek. Um, except a good question. That's a come on. Uh, and so um, <laughs> the thing about Sisyphus is, does he ever stop and go, wait a minute, how will I know if this is going great? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I, so like, again, let's, let's bring this back to a David Allen concept, which is like begin with the, what does it begin with the end in mind? What does he say? I think that's a, that's a cubby douchebag thing. Uh, David Allen says, I think, you know, focus on the outcome. Like, how will I know when I'm done here? Do you know what I mean? I, I think that's a very valuable idea with anything, especially involving client work, right? Like, uh, the one thing Mule, one thing that uh, Erica and Mike are great at is being so good about articulating how we'll know we're done here and how we'll know if we're off track with getting toward done. Do you know what I mean? And okay. so in the case of Sisyphus or Dan, I am by all means not saying just give up, quote unquote. But I think giving up on something impossible is kind of smart, right? I, I mean, if you, if you uh, well, another great myth, right? Um, what's his head? Um, dun, 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 Icarus. <laughs> The one that flew too close to the sun? or <laughs> Which I remember by singing the first three notes of an Iron Maiden song. Which song is it? As the sun breaks across the clouds, the old man stands on the hill. Fly on your way like an eagle. The problem with Icarus was he had wings made of wax. He got too close to the sun. Right. Well, a lot of us, no matter how hard we flap our arms, we're never actually going to fly, even if we're Greek, right? <laughs> and the thing is, it's impossible at this juncture. Sir, <laughs> we had the cleric uh, cast a, a spell of flight. Uh, and then he had to sit up for nine rounds because he's uh, useless. Uh, relied on the second level fern. Rounds are turns. Oh, God. You know, we never played, we never played, like, we totally, we played the lamest D&D in the world. Like, we didn't do weight. We didn't do encumbrance. Oh, God. Oh, it hurts. Why do I remember this? Encumbrance. Please be replaced with remembering to pay the bills. Um, (laughs) Because if you do encumbrance and you do rounds, like, that changes everything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, It's a real pain, and it slows the game down. But if you're with the serious Carl Van Hoot types... You know, uh, so how were you able to swing your uh, broadsword while carrying 200 pounds of gold? Chill out in this cube. By the way, you're, can, you do, can you just give me a little bit of your D&D? Voice? No, I can't. I can't Come on, it. it was so good. No, no, I can't do it. I don't even remember. So you're the sci-fi guy, and Jaster is more of the fantasy guy. Well, he's into that's fantasy. That's all, that's all I can say about that. He's into fantasy. <laughs> you revealed yourself to be such a D&D nerd when you did that. 
It was so great. I, I, I talked to John Roderick about this. You can really embarrass a lot of grown men by making a really loud D&D reference in a room and seeing who turns. <laughs> right, who laughs. You're done. you're done. You might as well like yell, <laughs> yell like, you know, yell blowjob in a frat. You know, like you're going to discover a lot about people <laughs> when you say bag of holding and a bunch of guys turn around and try not to smile. All right. Anyway, so bugbears. Um, we were leaving off the boring part of this so far, but I guess uh, this is not useful. I thought this was going to be useful. I had an outline and everything. Um, I, let's, let's try to make a, you want to start over? <laughs> let's start over. So I think, I think the wrong problem is um, a problem that's sort of ill-conceived or is not actually going to solve a thing. Let me see what I wrote down. I wrote something down for this BOOK thing. Um, hmm, this is an early draft of this, but I, I said uh, stop trying to solve uh, dead-end problems, as in non-existent, impossible, boring, and wrong problems. Wrong being the kind of big pattern there. I mean, obviously, try not to solve non-existent problems, because that is, in some ways, an impossible problem. <laughs> if, you, if it's kind of a made-up problem where you go, oh, my problem is my pencil's not sharp enough. Well, buddy, if you think that's your problem to, to Mr. JWZ, I said that about regular expressions, yeah. like you... Well, now you got two problems because <laughs> your pencil is never going to be sharp enough and neither are you. Let's capture that. Uh, and so an impossible problem again solving. Right? Now, <laughs> now let's get to this other one. We can come back to this, but I, I want to put these two on a continuum because I think they're actually weirdly close to some stuff that Michael Lopp has talked about. And I know it's some stuff that I, for myself, kind of obsessed with, which is how do you know when to quote unquote give up? I think that's kind of a, a lame way to put it, but how do you know when, let's put it differently. How do you know when you should be doing something different or differently? This, this is a theme obviously that's come up a lot on here. It's just developing this internal barometer that tells you when it's time to try something else, do something different, get away, try a different approach. And I think, I think realizing that a problem is impossible or is for practical purposes right now today impossible is not a bad idea. Um, again, back to David Allen. Uh, I don't know if – I forget. I, I, I conflated some of this. I can't remember. I think I made this example up. I can't remember. It might be his. Anyway, we'll go ahead and credit him. No matter how much you want to mow your lawn if you're on a plane, let's say it's your quote-unquote highest priority. Okay. Right? Like, let's say you prioritize your list, right? And your highest priority, you're about to get a giant fine from the Homeowners Association. Because, like, you, you've got, like, a, you've got your, your lawn's really overgrown. Right. You, you've got, like, a, you know, a Durango out there, and you've got a bunch of old controllers that you haven't gotten rid of yet. And so now you're about to get a big fine. Well, if you're on the plane, no matter how high your priority is, it, that's an impossible problem to solve right now. Is that, is, that, is that a tricky way to put it? I don't think so. No. So I think once you realize how many things you can't do right now or shouldn't do right now, you get a huge amount of clarity about what you can do or if you like should do. Is that Zen Master crap? Do you think? I think that makes sense. It do, no, it does make sense. I don't think it's too out there at all. Yeah, and I, you know, for those of you who sit around and inhale all this inspirational BS, uh, don't worry, you know, every, nothing's impossible. If, as long as you never do anything. But, but you know, <laughs> I don't want to crush your, crush your dream catcher or anything, but, like, you know, I, I think impossible can also just mean impractically difficult or not appropriate for right now. You know what I mean? So I guess what I'm getting at is, like, spending a lot of time on something that you can't solve is, is not a great pro- approach to something because ultimately someday you will know enough to know that you were trying to solve something that was impossible or you're trying to do something that was impossible. And, and so let's be honest, though, we're spending a lot of time on this one poll when personally, I think people spend way more time on the other poll, which is continually trying to solve boring problems, which, again, I think email is a boring problem. I think solving the problem of metadata in my MP3s is kind of a boring problem. It's, it's what, 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 what constitutes a boring problem? It's not even necessarily that it's boring to do, but if it went flawlessly, how much of an impact would it have? Mm. You're talking so when you say boring, you almost mean the the end result, the the effect that it will have is a boring effect, more than that, the problem itself is. That's more accurate, more well. Yes, that that is a better way to put it. But but think about it this way, Dan. Um, think about the development jobs that you've enjoyed. Don't, didn't you most enjoy ones where you had sharp tools and interesting problems? Yeah. Right. I mean, nobody wants to have dull tools and boring problems. You know, and this is why. Gosh, think about how many companies. I hear this at least secondhand. It's like everybody wants to be at the startup when it's five people, right? Like everybody wants to make measure map. <laughs> they got a lot done with like, you know, five people. That's, that's the dream, right? 37 signals back in the day. You get this room full of people who are really smart and working really hard. It's, that's the dream, I think, of the startup is that kind of clarity of a small group of people. But like who wants to be the person like who transitions this to the new CMS? Who mm. wants to be the person who helps the middleware scale? Like that's... Not very fun for most of us. 
Like some people, yeah, they can get totally like they can really, really enjoy tweaking my SQL, and that will be a, a fun thing for them. But for a lot of developers I know, like they like they like the making stuff. I, again, whatever. This is a different argument to have. But do you know? What do you roughly get what I'm saying, Dan? I do. Like, but there are certain problems that are. It's not that I'm trying to say make bad code, but I am, I am trying to say that. You know, let's say you got to go. Let's say you have to go scale your middleware or whatever the hell. Well, okay. Um, in order to do that, do you have a really good idea of the outcome and the resources and all that stuff, all the kind of like previous episodes sort of stuff to have in mind to, to do what you want to do? Well, then if you, if you said, well, I can't really get started on this until I get my chair the right height <laughs> or until I get my quarter out of the snack machine yeah. or whatever. Well, first of all, I mean, that's, that is a kind of non-existent problem. It's completely unrelated. It's like Dan with the plunger while he's got holes in his roof, right? Hypothetical Dan. One of my favorite rappers, by the way, from the East Bay. <laughs> we used to call him Hype D, Hypothetical Dan. Uh-huh, right, right, of course. Yeah. He's, he's white. Very white. Big ball. Um, that's a terrible example. That's a terrible example. I'm trying to think of a better example of, uh, of uh, a boring problem. Really, a boring problem is anything where, like I say, like where the results are not going to have any... any um, the problem is there's nothing, there's no springboard there, right? There's nothing, like, there are certain kinds of problems that, that solving them is not going to make anything that much better. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's uh, to fall back on another douchebag thing, the 80-20 Pareto principle, which is heavily, heavily abused. But, but in this sense, what, I, what I'm saying is that by focusing on a relatively small number of factors, you can have an outsized result, right? As opposed to trying to f- uh, focus equally on something, whether it's going to have uh, high yield or low yield, and not really caring about where that time goes. You could think of that as prioritization. I wouldn't think of it that way. I'm really talking on a slightly higher level than that. I mean, I think all this stuff is going to probably not make sense because you know your job better than I do. I'm talking about solving interesting problems in life, really. And I am trying to get this back to the fear thing, to, to be dead honest. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're not trying to solve problems that you're scared about, you might want to wonder if that's a really interesting problem to solve. Right? I mean, why do we end up trying to solve boring problems? Because we hate impossible problems and we hate scary problems. But on the other hand, if we're scared enough of a scary problem, we'll sit around working on an an impossible problem, maybe because it's a familiar problem. I think email is impossible and boring, but it's very comfortable. And you can solve it a little bit for a while, but you'll never really solve the, the bigger problem of that. The bigger problem of that is that it will suck up your time and really discourage the skills that make you great at what you do if you let it. I think. Yeah. No, I hear that. And I, that, that listening to you kind of go back to the fear thing reminds me uh, to talk about uh, one of the, and this has been on my list for yeah. a long time of things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, which is f- fear of success. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Can, I can honestly say I don't have it anymore, but I did for many, many years. And it was something that I struggled with without knowing, without realizing uh, that that's what I was afraid of on a number of, that that was that that was one of the things that was potentially holding me back and and you hear that and you're like it sounds silly it, it sounds, sounds silly like what would yeah. you be afraid of and I can I can give you at least a couple of examples of things in my life that looking back I say oh of course of course that's what I was scared of I didn't know it at the time I hadn't I didn't realize it at the mm-hmm. time but uh, but but I think I, I think if somebody had pointed it out to me and said you know, well, so, so what, so what if these things that you're scared of actually happen, uh, that I might've seen it, you know? So, yes. And identified it for what it was. And you would say, why would you be afraid of success? Everybody wants success. Duh. Mm -hmm. But that's not, uh, that's not the case. I think everybody wants to feel successful, but success and, and failure, which I think are two extreme poles on a really complicated continuum are both part of the same family though. And that is the family called change. And I think most of us don't, like change, whether we admit it or not, we want, we want things to be better, but we don't necessarily want anything to change to make it that way. And this is why I call a lot of what's out there called self-help. I call it non-self, non-help. It's, it's, it's other not help is what a lot of it is. It's very, it's comforting BS with no incentive to change. Right. If you own more than two self-help books, you need to stop buying self-help books, including mine. Like, I hope mine helps. I hope you pick up a copy up from the library. I hope it's good for you. But, but you know what? If you own like 10 self-help books, you need to really think about that. Like at what point does that help become something that you do yourself? Do you know what that help really looks like? Yeah. Is it possible, just hypothetically, that, that what you're really scared of is change? 
because it doesn't take a book to change. It takes guts. And when, so, so this is kind of the, there's a much bigger thing I need to get out here um, and a credit I have to give here. But first, just to get this one, I, I agree with you, Dan. I think fear of success for a lot of us just means fear of, of this alien feeling of something that's new. I mean, this is what- Or this fear is, of responsibility, maybe. It could, yes, it could be. But I think it's also, it's a fear of, of, of reality. Like the problem is when we say, oh, fear of success. Oh, that's only, that's, that's fine for Dan. Well, no, I, it's like, no, that's not what that means. If you really think about it, it's, it's fear of change and it's fear of, it's fear of having to confront what the reality of success looks like versus your impression from watching reality. I think, I think if you sit around and your whole idea of success is based on Thurston Howell, the third, a man who literally has like three or four <laughs> different straw hats for a three hour tour, that's a different conversation, but he brought a lot of money to go on a small boat trip. I don't know why he didn't just take his own boat. If he's that rich, Oh God, don't get me started. There's so much. I makes me angry about that show, except for Marianne. I would ruin her. They would need dental records when I'm done with her in a good way, in a positive, oh, affir- affir- no, in an affirming way. But look, if you if you sit around going like, oh gosh, I want to be like I want to be like this rich person that I saw, well, you know, if 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 first of all, if that's your idea of success, well, it's not that that hard to get rich. It's a lot harder to be happy. <laughs> you know, it really is. It's for some people who are, have trouble. Ask Elvis, right? Why again? Why is Elvis unhappy? Elvis is unhappy because he's unhappy. That's the kind of person that he is. Um, Elvis accidentally. I mean, go ask Kurt Cobain what it was like to be successful and wealthy. He wasn't a very happy individual. Right. Um, and I have to be honest, without being melodramatic, he's somebody who always looms large in my mind, not because I have that sort of ideation, but because he's somebody who got something he didn't mean to ask for. Mm-hmm. So when we ask for things like success, it's worth asking, well, do we really want everything that comes with that? Um, which includes sacrifice a lot of the time. And it includes alienation from the world that we're in right now. So, okay. So all of that aside, I totally agree with you, Dan, but like, the half the audience is probably already screaming and pounding on their monitor because they haven't mentioned the War of Art by a guy named Stephen Pressfield, which is you know. And the more I read it, the more I think it's like not the greatest book in the world, but elements of it are just indelible on my brain. It's this guy who's a novelist. He wrote he writes writes mostly like military fiction, um, but he I learned about it from David Allen, and 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 the reason I, I mentioned here and I really like it a lot is that his notion is that especially with regard to writing, it's. Uh, I'm really stealing David Allen's description more than I'm describing it myself, but the closer we get to the thing that we really want, the more resistance we will feel, like capital R resistance. We will feel some force pushing us away the closer we get to something that we think we really want. And for a lot of us, that could be writing. Let's be honest. It is not that hard to write. I mean, I could, I could do that all day. I sometimes do. <laughs> See, also cranking. It's not really that hard to type. It's really hard to make something good when you're writing. It's not that hard to do anything, really. Um, but the problem is like, if you start really actually doing it instead of thinking about it, instead of like, you know, polishing your beret, if you actually start doing it, it's scary. It's scary not to be a writer. You can, anybody can call themselves a writer. It's scary to write. And if, if you don't believe that, then why ask yourself why so many people who try to do it all the time have such a problem sitting down and typing? Why is it? Isn't that weird? And it's not because typing is hard. It's because getting close to that thing is scary. And it's why, and, but to the point of the Pressfield book, The War of Art, highly recommended, uh, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you work on your symphony this month? Like, why didn't you do your painting? Why didn't you do your thing? Well, because you'll find a million reasons in the world not to do it. And on that day when you did have a chance to do it, I'll bet you did something else. Because there's some part of you that really resisted doing that thing. And he calls it The War of Art because he thinks beating that resistance is what it's all about. Now, is that related to fear of success? Maybe. Maybe not precisely the thing that you're talking about, Dan, but I think it's heavily related because yeah. I think it still represents fear of change. Um, people don't like external stuff being forced on them, but they're also not great at doing it themselves, most of us. Most of us, and this is where we get kind of back to the fat man in some ways, is most of us tend to think that that glass is always going to be sitting there ready to have milk poured in it. Well, that glass is temporarily unbroken and your life is te- kind of just temporarily unbroken. So enjoy what it is for now because change is not something that's negotiable. And I think once you accept that, and once you accept the true gut-wrenching scariness of the fact that you don't have that much control over that much stuff, something like sitting down to write suddenly seems a lot easier than it used to. And as you get older, that gets easier. When you're a kid and you're Dan Benjamin or, or me in mm. 1995, you'll take any gig you can for any money because you're scared to death. Right. Doesn't matter. Then you got to get a little older and go, wait a minute. Hang on. Like, 
I don't get to see my family anymore now because I'm taking all these $15 an hour gigs. Right. Maybe I should charge $50 an hour and spend more time for a while finding people who think that's a good deal. I started doing that with my speaking and it helped a lot. You know, rather than trying to negotiate with somebody about like whether it's worthwhile going, well, this is, it's, no matter how much you want the Big Mac to be a nickel, this is what it costs. Because <laughs> I don't want to have to make that many Big Macs this month. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's related, but the fear thing is huge and the fear thing writ large is what keeps us scurrying toward familiar problems. It's what, whether it's, it could be a problem we hate, but it's a problem we know, right? And I think most of us would rather have a familiar fear than um, the potential of an uh, alien anxiety. Anxiety. Alien anxiety. Well, I think a fear, I think fear is is healthy because fear is, like I said before, it's been a while since I said this, so it's okay to repeat, right? Yeah. Fear fear is going, there's a bear out there and anxiety is going, there might be a bear out there sometime. And one... Oh, it's only been one episode since, since, maybe two since you said that. Yeah. All right. Uh, fear is going, um, I just repeated myself. Anxiety is going, oh, God, I hope I don't repeat myself. Because if anxiety is based not in a thing that's there right now and threatening you, it's based on your own amount of um, reluctance to confront whether there really is something there. Yeah. And that's, that's meta-scary. You know? That's why that Franklin D. Roosevelt line is so sticky. You know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, when you fear fear itself, then everything becomes scary because everything's alien, everything represents change, and everything represents a threat. And I don't think there's any way to completely get away from that, but I think anybody who's ever had things like GAD or any kind of anxiety problems, um, I'm fortunate enough not to have those. Um, I've had them a little bit, but not a lot, but I've never had, like, panic attacks. Like once you get off that, I mean, that, 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 again, that's the far end of the spectrum. But there are people who just seem like universally calm. And then there are people who are just universally torqued up. And I, I, I think that for a lot of us, there's some part of our brain that's always spinning with how could, how could this go wrong? Yeah. Am I scared of success or am I scared of the fact that I might have to go update my resume and go, well, why is that hard? Well, I might have to really go find some of the stuff I wrote that I don't like. Or, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I think there, this resistance becomes this, yes, it's part of you, but it also almost becomes like this uh, little demon on your shoulder that's always coming up with some reason, new, a new fear for, to keep you from doing this thing you want to do. And so the impossible problem, you know what's great about an impossible problem is its durability. It's there. It's like an old friend. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like what? It becomes almost like this, this little uh, keloid you're always protecting. Like you've, you've got this, this scar that's like your special scar. What? A ke- wow. Keloid? That you're always protecting. Yeah. I kind of stole that. It's, it's, it's uh, a good I le- one. Yeah, I learned that from Joni Mitchell, I think, that word. This episode of Back to Work is sponsored by MailChimp. MailChimp also asked me to write a rock opera about Dan. Here's part one. A lot of the things that Merlin talks about there, that's fine for Merlin because... Ubisunt, tribe of Dan, with your purple bangy hand, save us from this mortal land, for sometimes there's a man, the goddamn moves to us and soon will That was Ubisunt, the first movement from Sometimes There's a Man, a rock opera about Dan Benjamin, commissioned by our friends at MailChimp. MailChimp. They sponsored this episode, and then they totally asked us to write a rock opera, because that's just how they roll. MailChimp. You know what else they got? Well, I, um, my friend Mark works there, you know, and they, they're, they're, they're like a nice company, too. They're not jerks or anything. They're a good company. And you know what else they got, Dan, Dan Benjamin? They got web hooks. Do you know that? They got web hooks. Web hooks. Those hooks. are different from golden monkeys, which they also mm-hmm. have. They got a golden monkey? They do have, well, m- multiple golden now, is that, monkeys. That's nothing like a chaos monkey, right? It is not the same thing. 
Okay, on Chaos, Chaos was the group that's like Spectre, except on Get Smart. <laughs> right. And Barbara Feldon was 99, and then Toto had a song called 99. Is that right? Who was, who was the one that was in the nude bomb, though? It wasn't 99. That was the uh, Maxwell Smart movie? Yeah. I don't know. I don't it know. It was the same lady who, who was uh, the princess, uh, the villain princess lady on Buck Rogers. Oh, man. Remember who I'm talking about? Princess. I do, but even if I didn't, just the idea that it's a villain princess lady. You don't remember? No, what I'm telling you, Dan, is just that phrase makes you want to just stand up and walk around a little bit. (laughs) A villain princess lady. God, you can rock me to sleep. I like that. I like that Erin Gray. That Erin Gray. Yeah, Erin Gray's great. She's aged well. She has. She's terrific. I I used to have a big A cup thing. Web hooks are neat, um, and MailChimp has those. (laughs) You know, you know uh, it's like that Shakira song, uh, Jumpsuits Don't Lie. Princess Ardala. <sighs> did you see, uh, did you see, uh, <laughs> I should say this, I retumbled this really awesome <laughs> picture of Terry Gross from the Fresh Air Tumblr. Go to yourmonkeycalled.com. And Scott Simpson um, kind of recombinated that. I only mentioned... <laughs> <laughs> because it's a Buck Rogers reference. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna drop you a message right here. You can. Did I do something? What did no. I do? Were you mad? No, I'm just. Oh. I found a. I did a Google search. Oh man. Uh, for, for images uh, for Princess uh, Ardala. Gonna need a minute. Did you go to your monkey called? We'll cut all this up. Oh, I totally <laughs> remember her. <gasps> Ooh, Gil Gerard. Nice armband. <laughs> oh, that is a smart armband, Gil Gerard. So anyway, basically Scott Simpson's site. <laughs> Your monkey called. This is Scott Simpson's site. It's great. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he thinks Terry Gross looks like the Birdman. <laughs> no, he's not the Birdman. <laughs> His name was Hawk. Yeah. Hawk. File a bug. He is a Birdman, though. We should go soon. Is there anything else? We can cut all this out. We can make this all after show, right? No, this is, we'll keep this in. This is good stuff. Yeah, I, I, have, I have to pee. Should I wait or should I go now? No, you got to hold it. I'll make you be Are you more kidding concise. me? Do we still have to cover OLED monitors? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, orders for OLED monitors. I'm sorry, reported. I just think learning to solve the right problem is not a bad place to start. Because, uh, because it does... This, okay, this, hold on a second. Hold on. It's something okay. that occurs to me. Yes. What if your job includes solving boring problems? Get, get great at hacking on it, and uh, solving boring problems is fine. I mean, especially if that's your job. That, that's, that's a good thing. But I mean, if you're not happy with that, then you're trying to solve a boring problem in your life. And mm. that's a big difference, right? So one reason you might have a job solving boring problems is so you have lots of time to think about your painting or your pictures of Terry Gross or whatever it is that you enjoy in your off time. That's a great idea. You know what I'm saying? If you're just there for the insurance, it's nice to have a job where you can solve boring problems for exactly eight hours then go home. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm, yeah. I'm trying to put this in a larger context. Um, it's, I, I don't know. In some ways, this is the ultimate cop-out to all this BS that I talk about, but it's really true. People go, inbox zero. <laughs> I've always got inbox 15 minute camp. That's great. It's fascinating. Boy, you, you sure are a maverick. Well, are you okay having <laughs> in your inbox? Yes, I always have my system. Okay, well, then you don't need this. Is there another question? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like umbrellas. I like being wet. Well, like, then why are you mad at me? Like, that's great. You know, if you're happy with that thing, the problem is I think most people aren't happy with that thing. I think most people aren't happy with emails in their inbox. I think people, most people aren't happy solving a boring problem that has turned into a boring job. The whole reason we've got this stupid show is to talk to people who are more ambitious than that. And, and the thing that I'm finding increasingly inescapable is in talking about those steps that I talk about, right? The first care and going through and, if you go through all the way through that and get through the working part of this to where you're doing stuff over and over, again, this horribly unsatisfying answer, which is after you start doing stuff a lot, you start seeing more, right? And so if you see something right now that feels like, an impo- like, a, like a, hard, a merely hard problem, you may be blown away in a few years to realize you were kind of trying to do something impossible. Mm-hmm. I can build your character, right? I mean, I, I hate to go Star Trek, but, you know, again, Kobayashi Maru, right? Really, really, that, that Kobayashi Maru tells you everything you need to know about impossible problems. Yeah. Basically, with Kobayashi Maru. Mm-hmm. I, I beat it, though. Yeah. Kobayashi Maru is a simulation they give to Starfleet, you know, academy students, where basically... Cadets, would you say cadets? I don't want to get a single word of this wrong, because oh. I just, 
I can't take the Frito laced emails. Oh, I know. But the uh, <laughs> uh, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, Tiberius, <laughs> not Tiberius, Kirk. <laughs> so you go to Starfleet Academy because you want to go be a big captain or whatever. And so they give you this test. This I just think this is so brilliant. Spoiler alert. So you get this test. And this has been around for years. It was featured in the last Star Trek movie. But basically the notion is you're going to go and, and, you know, they have lots of simulations you're going to do. Like you're going to learn how to fly up, you know, your Starship Enterprise or whatever. And so the notion is they put you in this simulation where you get a distress call from this, like, civilian, um, you know, spacecraft called the Kobayashi Maru. And the distress call is that, like, basically they're about to get their ass kicked by some Klingons, I believe. And so basically you have to decide whether you're going to let those people be left to the tender mercies of the Klingons or you are going to go into basically like a DMZ where you almost certainly be fired upon by the Klingons, Mm -hmm. right? So you, you you go, oh, I see. They're giving me a really difficult thing to decide what to do here, right? And so you as the captain have to go, oh, well, I'll be really brave and go try to rescue those guys. Or I'll be really smart and protect my butt by not going in there, right? Or something in between. But here's the problem. No matter what you do, your ship will be destroyed in your sim- simulation. Yeah, there's, so no way, there's no way to, e- e- no matter it's not what even, the it's scenario not even un- is, It's not, not even unwinnable. It's not even unwinnable. It's un-anythingable. Right. No matter what you do, your ship will be attacked. Everyone all of your crew will die and you will fail the exam no matter what because that's what the test is. You think it's about decision-making, but it's really about how you handle impossible situations. And I just think it's, it's such a brilliant metaphor for this stuff where like how would you know whether or not somebody was throwing a Kobayashi Maru scenario at you? What if, how do you know every email, do you treat every email like it makes sense? Like you have the time and scope to deal with it as a sane thing? Like how would you know? If you started getting just completely bananas email from people, would you be able to know? Do you say no to enough stuff that you have a pretty good idea that you're not doing impossible things right now or mm. tacitly believing? I, I, now, I'll leave it to the nerds to say whether this is still true today, but at one time there was only one person who had ever basically passed or beaten the Kobayashi Maru scenario. And anybody who's seen the movie knows it was Kirk because he went and he, he hacked the program. The third time he did it, he went in and he changed the test so that he could win. So the only way to beat Kobayashi Maru is to cheat. Now, do they, do they tell the, the cadets or the students that, that it is unwinnable? Do you know going into it that it's unwinnable, or are you thinking— I have to imagine you would know that it's un—and see, that's the thing. That, this is something—I'm not a Star Trek fan, but— and the like, goal is just to see how do, you, how do you, as a potential captain of a starship— I don't know how starship, you should administer it more than once, because it seems like somebody would go, man, that is bullshit! I couldn't even win that shit! Some, sorry, there'd be somebody <laughs> around the Star Academy— like tearing off their shirt and like and like slamming Bud Lights, going like that is that is for the birds, man. I didn't even get a chance. Yeah, it to seems like them. once you do it by one, I mean, uh, by one like class, the, then the next class that you can't do it again because I'll be talking about it. And Benjamin, I have a really, 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 really pretty good feeling that we'll have an answer to that. Maybe now already. Yeah, yeah. So we'll just check. All right. Okay, we, we got to button this up soon. I'm serious, but I'm about to bust a Kobayashi Maru down here. Let's do it. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, I love that story, and I, I'm using it in the book because I think, I think it's, it's really emblematic of, of how you get good at this stuff. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. What did I write down here? I, I, I don't know if this makes any sense yet, but um, the, I've been thinking how like people, almost everybody who's a knowledge worker, or you can call it an artist or a maker or an anybody. Like almost everybody at any level wants to have compensation and recognition, right? You want to get paid for what you do and you want to be, you want people to notice that you did it, right? I think, that's a, I think that's a pretty big theme in a lot of what we talk about is how do I make money off this thing I want to do? And then how do I get people to know it and, or like me or whatever you want to call it, right? I think at the higher level, you get to the stuff we talk about a lot, which is what I would call independence and expertise. I think the really smart knowledge workers go, yeah, well, I've got to be compensated. I'll certainly be recognized. But the way I'll get money and recognition is by becoming independent and getting experience. Like that will, it will be a lot easier to get paid for this once I know more and do more and I have enough experience to know whether I'm good at this and that I can do it on my own. And I don't know if this is BS, but I, the way I said, trying to phrase this, at least in this outline, is that the really great knowledge workers, they demand all of those things. But they also demand the fulfillment of making something that they love. They do expect to be compensated, recognized. They expect to be independent, expert, and f- they expect to be fulfilled. 
And it's not like they say that you can have one of those and not the others. They go, you know what? It's more important for me to love something, to love what I'm making. I'm going to be so excited about doing that that I'm going to quit trying to do impossible things and I'm never going to do another boring thing. Not, not, not that I'm not going to do boring things. I'll stick with the boring things that I have to do, but I'm always going to regard them in the context of whether they're helping to serve an interesting problem. Now, if you just moved up, you just got out of jail and you got some job like answering phones somewhere, that might be a really boring job, but it's a really interesting problem because you've never maybe been able to hold a job before. So that's for you, that's a super interesting problem. Yeah. If you're somebody who has 40 years in programming, and you're sitting there trying to build basic controllers for Dan, that's not a super interesting problem to solve. If you see that in the context, well, at least now I can take care of my sick wife and maybe retire, that's good. But again, you need the expertise to see all of that stuff in context. But you know, the takeaway message before I literally urinate myself okay. is, that, is that if you're struggling with, with any of these issues that we talk about a lot, or if you're wondering, like, am I, am I where? let's look at it this way. Let's say you're not just a total idiot newbie. Let's say you're a pretty smart cookie. Well, be a smart enough cookie to ask yourself how many of the problems you're solving are impossible and how many of the problems you're solving are not really all that interesting. And if you were to accept my stupid current theme statement this week, if you decided to make time to be scared of something more interesting, like what would that look like? What would you not do in order to make that time? And uh, what is it you're willing to be scared of this week? We should button this up. No, we just end right there. Yeah, really gotta be. Hang on. We shouldn't be drinking more if, if you have to pee. Don't judge me, Dan. <laughs> it's just advice you. as a friend. One, one friend to another. I love you. I love you. I literally have to urinate literally right now. I love you. Love you too. <laughs>